and we're back with another episode of the anarchist experience episode 206 aka season 3 episode 26 uh coming at you this week as always i am your host mr rich e rich uh doing it solo again mc is still out uh on the ranch as it were uh hopefully he'll be joining us next week we'll have to talk to him and see how things went um and you know what that means uh when mc's out i get bored and so this is just another episode of richie rich reads the news all right let's just get into it because it's been a slow week nothing of news to report or anything outstanding going on so i got nothing so here you go uh government pensions incentives and our everlasting welfare state a headline, don't be duped by the latest universal basic income scheme. Headline, some towns are trashing their costly, inefficient recycling programs. Headline, in Germany, the state can seize your dog if you're late on taxes. Headline, NYPD banned street parking for department flag football championship, says it, quote unquote, relocated violators' cars. A headline, why does the federal government have 1.4 billion pounds of American cheese stockpiled? And finally, headline, popular defiance will kneecap gun laws in New Mexico as it has in other states. Uh, let's just go from the top. Headline, government pensions, incentives, and our everlasting welfare state. Welfare programs are a cornerstone of an interventionist state, which despite its demonstrable failures is rising in popularity, especially among millennials. However, socialism's adherents are largely unaware of the negative effects of the ideology they so enthusiastically embrace. For example, these advocates should ask themselves why welfare programs persist even when the government is aware of their negative effects on economic growth, especially when the government claims to be a champion of economic growth. Three years ago, Bill Morneau, Canada's Minister of Finance, established the Advisory Council on Economic Growth to develop advice on concrete policy actions to help create the conditions for strong and sustained long-term economic growth. In its report, Tapping Economic Potential Through Broader Workforce Participation, the Council noted, the workforce participation rate of older workers is 62% in the top-performing OECD countries, Sweden, Norway, United States, Japan, and New Zealand. But in Canada, it's only 54%. Closing the gap could add $56 billion to GDP, or 2.8% GDP per capita. Pension systems should not discourage working. Older Canadians willing to remain in the workforce beyond their traditional retirement age should not face disincentives. Emphasis added. We believe that the age of eligibility for the old age security program and Canada's pension plan should be recalibrated and increased to meet the Canadian reality of an aging society and a considerably longer life expectancy than we had just few decades ago. Increasing the age of eligibility for the a excuse me, increasing the age of eligibility for the OAS and by association the guaranteed income supplement which had the same eligibility age and the CPP would follow a trend in many other OECD countries, which have extended the age of eligibility in recent years to make their public pension systems more fiscally sustainable. Disincentives. The Council's recommendation is based on a concept which is equally applicable to other government welfare programs, such as unemployment insurance, child benefits, etc., these programs are disincentive to employment 
because government handouts trigger the entitlement mindset. Why should I get a job when the government is willing to force other people to support me? Thus, by discouraging productive work, the government's policies promote the growth of problems they are supposedly trying to solve, namely the alleviation of poverty. As Thomas DiLorenzo wrote, the government has, for many welfare families, made getting a job an irrational decision. So it should be no surprise that after spending more than $4 trillion on welfare programs since 1965, the United States has seen poverty increase. Welfare programs have become an alternative to work. A 1992 study by economists Richard Vedder and Lowell Galloway found that only 18% of welfare recipients moved out of poverty compared to 45% of poor people who did not receive welfare. The welfare state has done an excellent job of crippling an important cornerstone of an enterprising free market capitalist society, the incentive to work. Government hypocrisy. Since the labor market was one of the areas which the government asked the council to focus, it is noteworthy that their advice was rejected out of hand. Noteworthy, but not surprising. Seniors are a large voting bloc, which means economic growth will be sacrificed as the liberals pander to the desires of pensioners. Rejection of council's advice by Canada's liberal government reflects the mindset of the vast majority of politicians, which is to say or do whatever is required to get elected and re-elected. That is why when we study the government's various policies, we see the hypocrisy in the common is the common thread. The government says it wants economic growth, yet it continues to maintain various welfare programs which inhibit economic growth. These are conflicting policies, which means the government's actions are hypocritical. Council members were handpicked by the government, and the government did not dispute their advice. They simply ignored it, and have continued to ignore it for two years. Moreover, government have likely been aware of the counterproductive effects of government welfare programs for decades, just as economists have been aware. Therefore, it is not true that slower economic growth is the unintended consequence of government welfare programs. In fact, slower economic growth, which reduces overall prosperity, was and is the government's intended outcome. The outcome is intended because the government intentionally maintains its welfare programs with full knowledge of their negative income economic effects. This does not mean politicians like the negative economic effect. It simply means that votes from various welfare constituencies are more important to them than increased prosperity for all groups. This may seem counterintuitive, but it's not. But not if you understand the mindset of politicians and bureaucrats. Governments do not usually favor increased prosperity for all groups unless they claim to be their policies deserve credit for this outcome. Thus, increased prosperity for all groups due to the elimination of government welfare programs makes the government look bad. Guaranteed Minimum Income Theory <clears throat> Another socialist program which is gaining new adherence is the universal basic income or some other form of guaranteed minimum income. Many promoters of no-strings-attached government-guaranteed income believe such programs will alleviate poverty by increasing employment. They say this is likely because unemployed people will not lose any portion of their government-guaranteed income if they become employed. In other words, there is no disincentive to work. That's their theory. A council's report blows that theory out of the water, asserting the ca causal effect on the workforce participation rate. Council recommended increasing the age of eligibility for CPP, which is unconditional and 
OAS, which is unconditional for people whose incomes do not exceed a specific threshold, uh, $75,910 in 2018. Thus, Council's position is clear. Unconditional welfare handouts are a disincentive to work. Again, these are the experts handpicked by the leftist government. Conclusion Eliminating welfare handouts will incentivize older people to work, an effect likely to be even more pronounced with the younger generations as they tend to be healthier and more energetic. Even though a majority of people do not trust their government, it is difficult to convince welfare recipients they can prosper by giving up free money. Therefore, the elimination of economically counterproductive government welfare programs may well hinge on voters' ability to grasp economic concepts and dispense with their misconceptions about the ideology of socialism. To borrow a sentiment from Ludwig von Mises, we need to rid ourselves of the idea that the state or government is the embodiment of all that's good and beneficial. Uh, end of the article. I think an idea or concept of this show that has either changed over the course of the years that we've been doing it um, or has just been more pronounced in my mind uh, as, as you know, the show evolves or doesn't um, is the, the idea of the necessity of a mind shift change uh, amongst individuals, right? And when you look at this article, it's clear um, you know, as, as far as poverty and wealth is concerned, that both start in the mind. Like, like poverty is a mindset that people have, which is why it's difficult uh, to convince individuals who are in poverty and on welfare or on assistance or anything like that, um, that they ought not be and they could be better off without it uh, because they don't have the mindset required uh, to make that shift, to make that change. And the opposite uh, is true for people of wealth, right? That wealth is a mindset. Uh, and that's why, you know, some people are entrepreneurs and some people are workers and not all workers want to be entrepreneurs. Uh, and why some workers, uh, looking at you and comms, uh, feel that they're wage slaves because they're forced into this, uh, by, you know, by, by some accident of nature, that play that place them at the bottom rung of the ladder, uh, and they have no incentive uh, or the mindset to to climb out of it. Uh, and I, I, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the likely the continued direction of the show as we go forward. Because I don't I don't see a way out of it or a peaceful way to you know to change that or a violent way to change that. In fact, it's just you know. How do you get someone to change their perception of of their reality uh, and view it in such a way that they no longer see themselves uh, as a victim to poverty, as a victim uh, to the welfare state, as you know, as a victim uh, to to their own line of thinking uh, and shift away from from feeling like they're a victim uh, and feeling more responsible uh, for things? I was having a conversation with a new friend uh, recently, and I don't want to get into the details too much, even though a lot of the information is public information. Um, it's it's kind of personal, so I'll just kind of outline the details. Um, we were talking about a third person, right? Me and a friend talking about a third person um, who holds some extreme viewpoints on certain issues, um, 
causing grief amongst the community. And this third person holds their viewpoint, uh, in my opinion, from a position of responsibility, right? Like they, they take responsibility for uh, actions and decisions they made long ago uh, in their life. And the, the friend, the new friend that I was talking to made the claim that the reason this third person holds those positions now as an adult uh, is because of prior victimization uh, as a child. And the, the reasoning that's provided is that the, 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 the person holds the viewpoint that they do so as not to feel like a victim or, or not to be made as a victim uh, for circumstances as a child. Um, and then I, you know, so I, I listened, I heard, you know, it was, it was a long conversation. Um, but again, I reflect on it after the fact, you know, I didn't, this was not part of the conversation that we had, but I reflect on it after the fact. And I go like, well, which position would I rather hold? Would I rather hold, uh, would I rather hold the position where I come from a place of responsibility? Uh, and I go like, you know, choices that I made back then may not have been wise, but they were still choices that I made, uh, you know, voluntarily. There was no force. There was no coercion. Um, I did it. I may not have been fully aware of what was going on, but I take responsibility for those things. Uh, or do you want to like go through life going like, you know, I'm a victim of every circumstance that comes to me. Uh, and therefore, you know, I am somehow entitled to things in the present for that past victimhood. Um. Uh, and, you know, thinking about it now, I would say, no, you, you would want to, right? The, the whole idea is to, to come from a position of responsibility for everything, for every action uh, that was done, for even the, even the actual victimization that you may have underwent throughout any period of your life, right? There's some level of responsibility that you must undertake as an individual, uh, regardless of what, of what happened, um, and if you, if you want to call in next time we do have the phone numbers up to tell me about how badly you were victimized or even now how bad your boss uh, or employer or whoever takes advantage of you, um, you know, let's talk about that. Because I would say that each individual, right, if we're always going to talk about the individual, holds some level of responsibility for everything that occurs in their life. Everything. Um uh, and we can get into that. So when it comes to, I want to jump back to the article, when it comes back to the, you know, the welfare state, um, if you are a recipient of the welfare state, right, that's, that's, you're responsible for that, right? Like whatever choices and decisions you made to put you in that position uh, is on you. Uh, not getting out of it is also on you. And like, like the article says, there's economic disincentives to get out of it. So it's hard um it's hard to lay the blame completely on welfare recipients for not wanting to. Uh, but at the same time, like they're responsible for that, right? Like whatever they did, got them into that position and they, it's, they're going to, it's going to be their mindset shift that gets them out of it. Uh, and if you don't like paying for the welfare state, right? If you're one of those people like, rah, rah, and I'm one of them, I don't want to pay. I don't, I don't want to help people. Like it's not my thing. Uh, I am, I am, you know, uh, the, the former term that we used to use was like libertarian brutalism, brutalism. Um, I don't care. Like, it's not my job. It's not my role. Um, could I in the future? Maybe. Um, do I care sometimes? Um, but it's never my obligation to do so. Uh, and so 
what actions do I take and what actions can you take to absolve yourself of the responsibility uh, to pay into this welfare state? And what can you do now uh, as an individual to, to relieve yourself of that burden, right? Like, and I don't have an answer, but figure it out uh, for you. Uh, I'm doing the best I can for me, um, you know, by, you know, working certain jobs and side jobs and filling out forms. You know, I just started uh, a new job and, you know, it was like, all right, yeah, I'm an employee, right? So there you go. Here's your, here's the federal tax forms you have to fill out. Uh, and, the, you know, my, my boss wanted me to, like, you know, digitally sign them uh, in the system. And I said, no, I, I can't digitally sign those because um, I, I sign my name different on on state forms, on government forms. And he goes, well, what does that mean? I, I have a free signature and I have a coerced signature. <laughs> and this is a government form. It's, you know, I'm going to call it coerced because they're not party to the employment agreement. They just kind of interjected their way into it. So I cannot sign the form uh, with a valid signature. I need to sign it with my coerced signature in case it's brought up later uh, that this was under duress. Um, so I, you know, I, I do weird shit like that. Um, and, and it's, it's my little, you know, mini protest or whatever you want to call it, um, to, to do it like that. And whatever works for you will work for you. Uh, but it's the mindset mindset shift, um, that both sides need to go into the people who are fighting against the welfare state need to shift their mindset and figure out how they're responsible, uh, for the current state of affairs and how, what they can do to alleviate themselves from that burden. And the people in the welfare state, you know, receiving the benefits, if they, if they value prosperity, right, what can they do to alleviate themselves uh, from that system, to, to unyoke themselves, for lack of a better term, um, from carrying the burden of being on welfare and get out there and be more productive uh, members of society, uh, you know, be more prosperous in their own lives, you know, uh, get more wealth or whatever it is they're looking for without having it be, come from a handout, uh, you know, from some government only looking for votes. Uh, I think I've said enough. Moving on. All right, next article. Headline, don't be duped by the latest universal basic income scheme. Yes, the same topic over and over and over again, uh, because for some reason it hasn't gone away. Uh, reading into it, 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang has been making the rounds on talk shows and popular podcasts like the Joe Rogan Experience over the past month. The key platform of his candidacy is what his team branded the Freedom Dividend. The pro this promise of $1,000 per month government payout for every American adult over the age of 18 is nothing more than a rebranding of what is commonly known as the Universal Basic Income, UBI. Unfortunately for Yang, the basis of both the supposed need for his policy prescription and the prescription itself is built upon a foundation of economic fallacies and lies. Yang is seeking to appeal to the same voters that helped Donald Trump rise to the presidency. He is explicitly targeting the struggling working class and what he claims are hordes of soon-to-be unemployed middle Americans with little education and job prospects. In other words, he's looking to buy votes by paying those who have fallen upon hard times and by convincing others that they too will need government handouts in the future due to losing their jobs to technology. 
while it can be said that all politicians are buying votes in some form or another, to make handing out $12,000 per year to every American adult the basis of your presidential campaign would be to set an alarming precedent with perverse incentives and a slippery slope. When $12,000 fails to satiate the voting public or live up to the outcomes claimed, which is to be certain, which is which it is certain to do, this figure can only surely rise in the future, and after enacted, how willing would voters be to simply give up their $12,000 payout? Uh, Yang's plan of giving the entire population of America over the age of 18 who aren't already receiving more than $1,000 in government benefits per month would mean the federal government, which is already $22 trillion in debt, would be handing out nearly $2 trillion per year. His solution? Funding the plan with a new value-added tax. Uh, a VAT is nothing more than an elaborate consumption tax. As Rothbard noted, surely a sales tax, other things being equal, is manifestly both simpler, less distorting of resources, and enormously less bureaucratic and despotic than the VAT. Indeed, the VAT seems to have no clear advantage over the sales tax, except, of course, if multiplying bureaucracy and bureaucratic powers is considered a benefit. As Yang has admitted, the freedom dividends polls far better than the term universal basic income with Americans. This alone should be a reason for concern. Yang isn't even an elected politician yet, and he's already relying on verbal sleight of hand to appeal to the population's economic ignorance and patriotic tendencies in order to convince them that handing out $12,000 a year to every adult is a good idea, even though it goes against their most basic instincts. Yang invokes three common economic fallacies to support his proposal. Number one, technology destroys demand for labor and dooms future generations to economic misery. Yang's claim that robots and automation are leaving less work for humans and dooming Americans to economic misery is an old and tired line that existed as long as capital has been accumulated and utilized to make technological breakthroughs. This line of thinking is a continuation of the logic espoused by English Luddites of the 19th century which protested against the substitution of manual labor for employing even the most basic forms of machinery. This is the same line of thinking that leads to protectionist trade policies. After all, robots or machine isn't the only form of competition for labor. Free trade, which allows for accessing skills and goods for lower prices globally than can be had domestically, was also claimed to be a job killer and economic death sentence. Over the past century, the protectionists have, of course, been proven wrong as the rise of global trade has led to both domestic and global economic growth, resulting in staggering declines in poverty and rising standards of living. Sure, instead of petitioning to end the use of technology in business, Yang and the supporters of UBR are suggesting government handouts via redistribution, but their entire basis for the need for a UBI emerges from this view that Americans are doomed to be displaced by technology and left worthless in the labor market. It seems hard to believe that after witnessing the last two centuries of employing more technology in the workplace and the commensurate rise in objective measures of standards of living over time, that anyone could make ev even make such a claim in good faith. 
Yang invokes the labor force participation rate, which remains below pre-2008 recession levels, and claims this implies we need a UBI because those not in the workforce are there due to technological displacement. And while it is true that labor force participation rates remain marred below financial crisis levels, the 4% decline in labor force participation happened between January 2008 and September 2015 as the U.S. economy entered the entered recession, and then languished from the government's so-called economic remedies. You would have to be a fool or conniving politician to suggest that the labor force participation rate, which even as technology progressed was unchanged between 1990 and 2007, suddenly plummeted due to the employment of technology following 2007. Yang tries to weave statistics into his justification for UBI and relies on hysterical, the sky is falling forecasts of mass unemployment driven by technological advancement in the near future. However, oddly enough, he never mentions the fact that 40% of Americans were employed in agriculture at the turn of the 20th century, and by the end of the 20th century, only 1% of the population was employed in the field, and yet America rose to economic prominence over the period. Tractors and farm machinery made millions of jobs obsolete, and yet economic catastrophe did not follow. The same can be said for countless other industries. Yes, specific jobs are destroyed by innovation and technology, but this has always been the case, and it does not lead to a general decline in the demand for labor. Furthermore, technology has historically displaced the most dangerous, monotonous, and grueling tasks, which we should all be thankful for. Fallacy number two. Maximizing employment as an economic goal rather than maximizing wealth. Yang claims that U.S. needs a VAT to stick it to companies like Amazon who are innovating away the need for labor so that this tax revenue can be used to fund the UBI and create millions of new jobs. Not only do empirical studies find that the rise of technology throughout history does not lead to long-term rise in unemployment, but this leads us directly to the second fallacy of making maximizing employment the measure of economic success and economic goal in and of itself. Even if the labor force participation rate was set to decline due to the rise of technology, that isn't something to necessarily fear. The fallacy arises in part due to the fact that the unemployment rate is discussed as being nearly synonymous with the strength of the economy. Intuitively, we should all know that we do not value work for work's sake. We value wealth, not jobs per se. If simply employing the most labor and resources instead of creating wealth is what is to be valued, then we would simply make every process as inefficient and labor-intensive as possible. But we don't. What makes people's lives more enjoyable, what raises their standard of living, and in which makes food and other key goods and services more abundant. If an abundance of resources can be had with less hours worked, surely we would all be in favor. In fact, it is clear by our very actions that we value wealth more than work for work's sake. People who speak alarmingly over the rise of automation and technology displacing human labor must be appalled by the fact that the average number of hours worked by full-time workers declined by over 33% over the course of the 20th century as technology was increasingly utilized. After all, if employment of human labor is good in and of itself, we should want to work more hours rather than less. But of course, that's not the case. At this point, surely the absurdity of such a fix—excuse me. At this point, surely the absurdity of such a fixation on maximizing employment is clear. We all want access to goods and services, and we all want to expand, expend as little time and energy as possible to attain them. Only masochists would want to labor away to attain things which could be attained with less effort. 
The past century of progress in the growth of material wealth of individuals has proven that the rise of technology allows humans to work less while simultaneously achieving greater degrees of material well-being. The employment of technology is not a plague to be feared. Alas, unfortunately, we can't all just sit around and do as we please while robots do all the work quite yet. People need to prepare for a changing economy and to learn new skills as they always have. The best thing we can do is make sure this happens is to get government out of the way of those willing to prepare. Fallacy number three. Consumer spending is the basis of economic growth. Following the Keynesian framework, Yang employs the fallacy of consumer spending as the basis for economic growth. Of course, if you measure economic growth as a measure of spending like GDP, less spending necessarily means less growth. Under the current GDP fixated Keynesian framework, it is spending rather than savings that make the economy grow. But this is merely a matter of a mathematical formula that makes up GDP and says nothing about the logical considerations of intertemporal allocation of resources that should actually be examined when trying to judge when to, when to what determines economic success. As Yang's Keynesian consumption fixation model goes, putting cash in the hands of individuals gives them confidence to spend. And when they spend more money, other people receive more money, and their confidence rises, and they spend more money. And this circular flow continues. Yang employs this narrative as justification to hand out money under the UBI. This is the foundation of the Keynesian framework, which suggests that aggregate demand for goods is what drives the economy, and a lack of demand for goods is what causes economic contraction. He seems unaware that great thinkers like Henry Hazlitt intellectually destroyed this framework many years ago. The model for viewing the economy ignores the fundamental trade-offs between producing consumption goods and producing investment goods. That is to say, it ignores the very notion of scarcity. Before more of something can be consumed, more of that thing must be produced. Producing more of a good first requires investment in capital goods like tractors or welders or production facilities. Investment in those capital goods necessarily requires savings, which is to say consuming less than otherwise possible. You cannot save if you have already maximized consumption, so it is savings, not spending, that allows for greater consumption in the future. The Keynesian framework, to which Yang likely unknowingly subscribes, sweeps this entire consideration aside. It focused purely on the need to boost aggregate demand. The employment of this model by the U.S. government has led to the justification for the disastrous deficit spending, bailouts, and money printing of the past century. This begs the question, why stop at $12,000 a year? If scarcity need not be considered, if the UBI is such a great idea, if high aggregate demand is the key to economic success, and if government can simply print money with no consequence, as it readily suggests today, why not just give everyone a UBI of $100,000 per year with money printed by the Federal Reserve? To suggest that this is ludicrous suggestion is to admit that there is indeed an undisclosed cost to such a UBI proposal, and for the entire Keynesian framework for that matter. Conclusion in the depths of the Great Depression, Keynes suggested that the government should have people dig up holes and then fill them up, so as to provide pay for anything no matter how fruitless in an effort to spurn on competition. A UBI is then nothing more than skipping the step of digging the hole. For the average man who is not corrupted and predisposed to the Keynesian model, the great pre-Keynesian economic insight of scarcity and the need to produce before consuming is largely self-evident. The corollary to this insight is that any policy that hopes to help those rise up and better the material well-being should first help individuals be more productive. 
Yang claims that the UBI will not cause people to quit their jobs as $1,000 per month is too little to cause people to quit work. While this may be true in many instances, it still misses the point. Shouldn't the goal of such a policy be to help individuals become financially independent? Have we completely given up on teaching a man to fish? Finland, which ran a trial of UBI for unemployed Finns from January 2017 to, to December 2018, had hoped it would give people the financial security to allow them to receive education and build new skills needed to re-enter the workforce. But the study concluded that those on UBI were no more likely to find employment than the control group who did not receive the payment. Yang's proposal is far more sinister as he is not even singling out the unemployed. In this way, it's simply just expansionary fiscal policy that goes straight to individuals. Ironically, this proposed by the same group of people that don't want to cut taxes. When UBI and modern monetary theory rises, rising to political prominence among the left's young and hip, we should prepare for the onslaught of economic fallacies that will be employed to justify their enactment. Uh, end of the article. So I know that was a long one, and I hope you stuck with it. Uh, one of the things I like to do when MC is not here is pick some of these that uh, take a little bit longer, require a little bit more thought, uh, only because, you know, it fills time, but also it's, you know, it's a, it's the time to do it. Cause when MC is here and I got to read through that and then we parse it out, uh, you know, with both of us, um, it can be a little time consuming and cumbersome. So there's that for some thought. And again, hopefully with all the articles coming out, uh, in opposition to UBI in any form, this should be an issue uh, that, that should be put to bed and put to rest um, soon, as it should have been a long time ago. And one of the problems with, uh, man, lefty thinking or, you know, uh, status thinking or political thinking um, is something also that should have been put to bed long ago. And that is, you know, the, the difference between the seen and the unseen. Right. All, all the UBI proponents uh, see this great stimulus, this cash in hand to individuals and what they never f what they never realize and what they always fail to consider is the downside, the cost of such a program and the effects that that has not only on the individual, uh, but on the society and the economy as a whole. Right. When 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 you do that, right, it, like the article suggests, um, it just it's just an economic disaster. And people don't, the, the people proposing the idea uh, don't seem to get that message and, and can't understand um, that it can have negative effects on the economy, uh, even though it may boost spending in some sections. Uh, I, you know, even after I found this article, right, I'm, I'm just, you know, perusing my newsfeed uh, and I come across the suggestion that, oh, great, you know, if we have uh, Yang's thousand dollar stimulus, well, guess what else will go up, you know, prices, right? Uh, you get a thousand dollars a month and all of a sudden your rent goes up by a thousand dollars. You know, if you're a renter, um, because everyone's got it and now everyone can afford it. Uh, and, and you know, guess who ends up with the money anyway, right? So every, even if you have a thousand dollars more to spend, um, at some point in time, that still won't be enough as prices rise, as the market catches up, uh, to the influx of quote unquote stimulus into the system. Uh, so yeah, I, I've you know I I know if MC were here, he would suggest uh, that his UBI plan with cryptocurrency is it'll work somehow differently. And I just uh, the only difference with with his plan is it's going to be voluntary. Uh, and then I say go for it. 
right? If, it, if it's not coming out of a tax, if it's not coming out of taxpayer funds, if Mr. Yang wanted to use his own money somewhere fashion to just start handing out to people, uh, by all means, go for it. But every time they suggest that it come out of, you know, the, the taxpayer funds or the societal funds or, you know, the, the country's funds in some form or fashion uh, to, to transfer the wealth from those that have to those that have not, uh, without without the corresponding effort or desire uh, to to transact the other way, uh, it, it can never be a good thing. So if it's going to be done voluntarily, um, it'll it'll still fail in my opinion. Um, but at least it, you have a better shot of not mucking up the entire economy by doing so, uh, because you're not actually you know taking wealth from a bunch of people. You're using your own wealth, um, and that's a that's a fine poor investment. Uh, on my, you know, in, in my opinion, if you want to waste your money, go ahead and do it. Uh, just don't be doing that with anybody else's. And yeah, and, and again, this, this whole UBI debacle should be put to bed, um, by now. And it's a shame that it hasn't been. All right, let's skip around a little bit and talk about guns. Uh, popular defiance will kneecap gun laws in New Mexico as it has in other states. Following the lead of their rebellious constituents, local officials say they won't enforce despised rules. Good for them. New Mexico is the battleground for the latest confrontation between politicians determined to impose legal restrictions on the right to acquire and own the means of self-defense and people unwilling to obey such laws. The state's governor is publicly feuding with county-level officials who, responding to grassroots anger at the proposed gun measures, vow non-compliance if they become law. The evidence from similar spats in other states suggest that the government's officials are once again poised to have their impotence demonstrated by people eager to disobey diktats from above. Mandatory background checks for most gun transfers, court-ordered seizures of firearms, and the denial of self-defense rights to those convicted of domestic violence offenses feature in the bills moving through the state legislature. The, me the measure, requiring background checks for all gun transfers except between close family members and cops, seems to have excited the greatest opposition. The gun-related measures have drawn opposition from all but a few of the state's 33 county sheriffs, the Albuquerque Journal notes. In addition, at least 24 counties have passed Second Amendment sanctuary ordinances in opposition to the legislation pending at the Roundhouse. The Quay County Resolution, as an example, dictated county officials to support decisions by our sheriff to not enforce any unconstitutional firearms law against any citizen. In response, Governor Michelle Juan Grisham, a Democrat, slapped back at what she called rogue sheriffs throwing a childish pity party. Uh, that's probably not the sort of language likely to win over the rebellious, largely rural residents to whom county officials are catering. Confrontations of this sort in other states, including Colorado, Washington, and even New York, resulted in the kneecapping of intrusive firearm restrictions and comprehensive background checks laws in Colorado, Delaware, and Washington produced an increase in such checks only in Delaware, a researcher from the University of California Davis reported in a study published in 2017 in Injury Prevention. One plausible explanation for our findings is low compliance in our study states, the researcher wrote, continuing, In Washington, there was a well-documented public I-will-not-comply rally at the state capitol at which firearms were openly transferred between private parties without background checks. 
There were also gun shows where non-compliance was encouraged and public calls for from pro-firearm organizations to not comply with the state's new CBC policy. Many county law enforcement officials in Colorado reportedly stated that they would not enforce its CBC law, and some retailers were declining to process background checks for private party transfers. In each state, noncompliance was a result of widespread local opposition to the law. Spurred by their communities, sheriffs in Washington also refused to enforce the background check requirement, and more than half have vowed to ignore new gun laws passed this last year. And the rebellion among Colorado sheriffs who are elected to office there are in and most states came in response to local sentiment of the sort of turfed-out lawmakers who supported gun restrictions. Which is to say, the low compliance in both Colorado and Washington was the result of grassroots defiance, with local officials following their rebellious constituents not leading the way. Sheriffs in rural New York counties also responded to constituents' hostility to tighten gun laws, in their case, registration of semi-automatic rifles. The New York State Sheriff Association and five individual sheriffs have joined a court effort to block enforcement of a new bullet limits for magazine and firearm restrictions, the Daily Star reported in 2013. Uh, Shohari County Sheriff Tony Desmond said he has no intention of enforcing the law and that his office won't do anything that would cause law-abiding citizens to turn in their weapons or arrest them for possessing firearms. Compliance with the state's registration law topped out at about 5% with the tiny law-abiding minority, minority heavily concentrated in the New York City area. Interestingly, local defiance of state and federal gun restrictions appears to reflect a desire for freedom from unpopular legislation that extends across the political spectrum. The specifics of the law to be defied vary from place to place, but the desire to be left unmolested by other people's rules seems nearly universal. The Second Amendment sanctuary county concept was borrowed from activists who, for several years, have convinced some local governments to declare themselves sanctuary cities for undocumented immigrants, meaning local law enforcement won't help federal officers arrest those whose only crime is being in the country illegally, according to the Santa Fe New Mexican. Definitions of sanctuary cities vary, but there are over 200 jurisdictions, including some of the largest in the country, that refuse to honor uh, ICE detainers, ICE Director Sarah Saldana told Congress in 2015. Some of us remember with particular fondness Norma Vroman, who served time for failing to pay income taxes before being elected as a libertarian to the office of district attorney for Mendocino County, California. Because of his hands-off policy toward marijuana and guns, Roman was endorsed by such disparate groups as the National Rifle Association and the Green Party, as reported in his Los Angeles Times obituary. Roman's battle with state and federal officials, the feds were planning a raid on his home at the time of his death, were made possible by a local culture contemptuous of legal restrictions imposed from above, especially those on marijuana. Restrictive laws can be unenforceable even if sentiment isn't sufficiently monolithic to drive local officials to butt heads with office holders further up the political food chain. In the absence of registration lists of gun and gun owners, which don't exist in most of the United States, and failed from popular defiance in New York, as mentioned above, the background checks causing so much fuss in New Mexico depend entirely on voluntary compliance. 
If only two people in a jurisdiction oppose such requirements, those two can safely buy and sell guns to each other so long as they conduct their transactions out of sight of law enforcement. <clears throat> Expand the population of eager scofflaws and you're bound to see widespread noncompliance as in Colorado, New York, and Washington. New Mexicans seem poised to demonstrate once again just how powerless politicians are over defiant people. End of the article. Obviously, with articles like this, uh, the the main idea that I would like to highlight uh, is the 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 non-compliant aspect of it, the the popularity of non-compliant aspects of it, uh, and the effectiveness of non-compliance when it comes to bad laws such as this. Um, which is why uh, you may have heard me say before, and I maintain the position despite some um, friendly opposition, and that is. Uh, if you're a, a Second Amendment supporter, one of those two-way activists, um, and you're worried about what's going to happen when they repeal the Second Amendment and they come to take your guns, if you are not ready, willing, and able to fire upon those coming to take your means of self-defense, uh, it is my opinion that you are simply virtue signaling your two-way position as opposed to being uh, a proponent and an advocate and a defender of the actual Second Amendment. Not that the Second Amendment uh, gives grants uh, anyone rights at all, just that it, you know, uh, encapsulated it in writing. Um, it doesn't mean a thing if you're not willing to defend it. Uh, there was, I, I listened to another discussion uh, on another show where it was, you know, what exactly are rights and how were they derived? Um, and they, you know, the, the conclusion that I agreed with uh, on, on that show was basically that, you know, what I've been saying all along, rights are what you can defend um, or what other people have granted to you in, in, a, in the form of um, voluntary agreement, right? You have, you have the right to self-defense um, because you can defend yourself, right? You have the right to carry a gun uh, if you can defend your ability to carry it or if other people um, leave you unmolested while you're carrying it. Right. You know, say same with all rights. It's inherently a concept um, that we have as a society, uh, as you know, as the basis for peaceful coexistence. Um, but for those looking to violate those rights, uh, that is when violence uh, comes comes to the front, comes to fruition. And in the in the case of, you know, gun laws and gun rights and Second Amendment sort of uh, arguments, if the if the state is coming to take your guns uh, as as they seem to want to do, right? It is your duty, I would say, if you're if you're an advocate for you know, like I said, an advocate for the position, to defend your right to carry against all encroachment, you know, foreign and domestic, uh, even though that you know whatever whatever those words may mean to you, and if you're not willing to do that, well then, you know, who cares uh, what the right what the what the Second Amendment says. If you're if you're not willing to fire upon those looking to take away your means of self-defense and defend yourself against it, well then why bother having it in the first place, right? If if you're going to stock up on AR-15s and AK-47s and all the like, um, and then just turn them in as soon as the government changes the rules, well then what's the point? You know that's you know why why even bother? Why waste the money? Why waste the time? Why waste the energy? Uh, why waste the oxygen you're breathing, you know, verbalizing that point? Like, who exactly do you think you're going to be, you know, taking up arms against, 
right? Who's going to, if not the government, who's going to come after your guns um, and remove your Second Amendment rights, you know, with, without violating the Constitution, right? Are you really that scared of, of you know, Muslim terrorists or, you know, or any, you know, any of that sort of people? Are you really scared of brown people from Mexico or, you know, the Middle East coming to take your firearms away? No, they're not even the ones attempting to do that. Are you really, are you afraid of Sharia law? You know, if Sharia law comes to your city and town, uh, are you really going to give up your arms, you know, and, and bow down to, you know, to that nonsense? Uh, probably not, you know, but if, but if, but if the second amendment gets repealed, oh, but that's American law. So all of a sudden, yeah, you please, please take my firearms away. Um, I'm just, you know, I, I am personally really just tired of hearing, you know, like I said, what I consider to be the virtue signaling where they say, well, if they pass the law, then, then we're all screwed. I'm like, no, you're not. You have the guns, right? <laughs> That's the whole point. You have the guns, you, you use them. If you're not going to use them, then what difference does it make? Whether there's a law in place or not. I mean, really, who cares? Um, and I guess the, the main point, again, in the article is it's nice to have the local county sheriff's departments uh, on the side of the people and in, in, in saying that they will not enforce it. Um, but in other places where they do enforce it, that's, that's who that's, you know, that's the first line of aggression. And that's the first line of defense that you need to take, take up against. Um, if they're not going to enforce it, then there ought not be the law in the first place. And if they're going to be on your side, then so be it. And hopefully if you're lucky, they'll be defending you, uh, when the, the higher ups, the, you know, higher in the food chain ranked people, come to take away those guns and if they're not willing to do that well then again same side uh who gets shot first and i really do, i really don't care uh either way uh, if you're willing to turn them in you know just because some law says so uh, like i said to, in my opinion um that's virtue signaling and it's nice to have uh, actual non-compliance don't turn them in don't tell anyone and you know if if push comes to shove uh actually use your right to self-defense to defend your rights to, 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 you know, defend yourself. If that makes sense. sounds a little roundabout, but it makes sense. All right, moving on. This is another one that hits kind of home to me. I don't know how, I don't know how relevant it is to the rest of this discussion. Um, but oh man, do, do I hate those extra bins outside my door? Uh, some headline, some towns are trashing their costly, inefficient recycling programs. The market seems to be sending towns and cities a powerful message that there is no need to recycle all the things all the time. Uh, into the article. Should that empty soda bottle go in the recycling bin or the trash can? Uh, in my opinion, the trash can. Uh, back to the article. Increasingly, it doesn't really matter. A large portion of America's plastic and paper waste used to go from our recycling bins to China, where it was refashioned into everything from shoes to bags to new plastic products. But since the end of 2017, China has restricted how much foreign trash or recycling it buys, including cutting off purchases of waste paper products like all the junk mail that goes directly from your mailbox to the recycling bin. As a result, the Atlantic reported Tuesday that some American cities and towns are sending all those recyclables directly to the landfill. In Franklin, New Hampshire, for example, a curbside recycling program that launched in 2010 was able to break even when the town was selling used papers, metals, and plastic for about $6 per ton. Now the town is being charged $125 per ton to recycle that stuff. 
Instead of asking residents to pay much higher prices to recycle or cutting other city services in order to be able to afford the recycling program, city officials have decided instead to send those recyclables to an incinerator. Towns in Ohio, excuse me, towns in Idaho, New York, Virginia, and elsewhere have had to make similar choices in recent months. The Atlantic reports as environmental signaling has come at a steeper price. Some places are stockpiling their recyclables in the hopes that things will turn around. In other words, in the hopes that China will start buying more American refuse again. But the sudden shift in the market has less to do with China than it does with the American fascination with recycling. Even as municipal recycling programs became almost ubiquitous in America over the past few decades, the underlying infrastructure remained economically and environmentally flawed. Recycling has been relentlessly promoted as the goal in and of itself, an unalloyed public good and private virtue that is indoctrinated in students from kindergarten through college. As a result, otherwise well-informed and educated people have no idea of the relative cost and benefits, wrote John Tierney in a must-read 2015 op-ed for the New York Times that predicted many of the problems facing the municipalities highlighted in the Atlantic story including the slumping demand for recycled goods brought on by lower oil prices and cheaper manufacturing processes. In fact, Tierney predicted many of those same problems all the way back in 1996 when he authored a longer takedown of the American recycling regime for the New York Times magazine. In that piece, he argued that recycling may be the most wasteful activity in modern America, a waste of time and money, a waste of human and natural resources. Meanwhile, it remains far cheaper to simply bury the trash. As Tierney noted in that 1996 piece, all the trash generated by Americans for the next 1,000 years will fit into less than 1% of the land currently used for grazing animals. Modern methods of of landfilling mitigate environmental hazards and allow the land to be reused for parks, grazing animals, and building baseball and tennis stadiums. Which isn't to say that all recycling is bad or that it should never be done. There are cost-effective ways to reuse some common goods like paper under some circumstances, but Tierney's view and the reality now facing some American cities with expensive recycling programs is that the benefits of recycling have been overstated for years and the costs never clearly understood. Consider a simple municipal recycling program. You've got a few guys riding around town on large trucks to collect all that plastic, aluminum, and paper waste. You've got to pay them, of course, and you have to buy and maintain the truck and put gas in it, which means you're creating more greenhouse gases, and that's just to collect everything. You have to pay more people to dig through it and decide what's recyclable and what's not, and about 25% of what enters the recycling stream is too contaminated to be useful, according to the National Waste and Recycling Association. Then you have to use more trucks, barges, and trains to get it wherever it's needed to be to go to be recycled. Paper has to be pulped, which requires heat, which might be provided by a coal power plant, more greenhouse emissions. The same is true for plastic, which has, been, has to be washed with hot water and then melted down. Americans are really good at buying stuff, and many consumer goods are cheaper than ever. That means we create a lot of waste, 60% more of it than 2015 than in 1985. But this is a very good sort of problem to have. People living in poor countries don't have the luxury of worry about recycling or landfilling the things they can't afford to buy in the first place. We're also not very good at recycling, despite decades of advocacy campaigns as reasons Christian Brzezinski 
has reported the Environmental Protection Agency says only about 9.5% of the plastic generated in 2014 was recycled that year, with 15% being incinerated and 75.5% of it winding up in landfills. That's why it's particularly galling to see some places respond to the recycling crisis by focusing on what the Atlantic's Alana Samuels termed the fourth R beyond reduce, reuse, and recycle. Refuse. Uh, San Francisco's city government, she writes, wants people to be smarter about what they purchase, avoiding plastic bottles and straws and other disposable goods. Asking people to be, be more thoughtful consumers is one thing, but San Francisco isn't really asking. The city has banned some products entirely, like plastic bags and straws, and has imposed taxes on single-use items like carryout boxes. That's not going to make recycling more economically feasible or environmentally friendly, but it is going to drive up the cost of doing business in the city and create more inconveniences for everyone who lives there. As for the idea that the tech-heavy Bay Area is going to suddenly become a place where people don't want to buy new things, well, I'll believe that when I see it. Like most other civic issues, recycling programs should be judged by their cost and benefits. That means an honest assessment of the cost and benefits, one that leaves out the social signaling of environmentalism and the feel-good effects of putting an empty Coke bottle in a plastic bin that's painted blue instead of black. There's no need to recycle all the things all the time. And the market seems to be sending towns and cities a powerful signal about the benefits of calling trash, trash. Uh, end of the article. Maybe it's my ODD, my oppositional defiance disorder, uh, if that is even a real thing. Uh, but I have never, ever, ever liked recycling, right? You have one bin, and it's called trash. And when you're done with it, it goes in the trash. And what happens beyond that, who cares? Because it's trash. Uh, even trash itself, right? People get upset like, oh, he was digging through the trash. Well, it's abandoned property, uh, free for all. If you want to take it and recycle it and see what you can get for it uh, beyond it being my trash, then please, by all means, have at it. But I can't stand separating out bottles and glass and paper and plastics and whatever and who this and that. I just, I ain't got time for it. I don't want to do it. I don't even like doing it now when it's like, oh, just throw it all in the recycles and then they sort it out later. Good. Then throw it in the trash and they can sort that out later too. Like, you know, what do, what do I care? Uh, and the answer is I don't. So it's nice. And not even, you know, to, to add to that, um, like it didn't even matter to me at the time, but I watched it anyway. Uh, uh, Penn and Teller's BS series where they, they, you know, called BS in the entire recycling program. Uh, and much like was said in this article, it just most of the time isn't worth it. Um, I think they said at one point in time, uh, aluminum cans, I think was the one thing, um, that had the, where the economic benefit outweighed the economic cost of doing so. So if you were going to recycle anything, uh, please, by all means do that. And then, you know, back where I'm from, uh, in Hawaii, they, it was, it was a bizarre incentive to recycle because of some years ago, they passed some, you know, BS law that basically said, you know, there's a, uh, six cent tax, uh, on all, you know, soda cans and bottles and whatever it is that you recycle. Um, uh, and then, you know, when you took it in, when you took your can back to recycle, uh, you got five cents back. 
So no matter what, the city benefited like one cent on every every soda can that was sold, um, which again, to me, goes, well, shit, it's not about recycling at that point. Uh, it's the revenue generating scheme on the state because all of a sudden they got millions of dollars of income coming in under the guise of environmentalism and recycling. And to me, I just went, well, screw that. I'm throwing it away just to spite them, right? I'll pay the extra six cents uh, if and when I do buy those goods. Uh, but like hell, am I going to like sell it back to them for a loss? I'll trash it in spite. And to make matters even worse, right, as far as I know, there wasn't even a recycling program in Hawaii that gave you your five cents back per can, right? They did, they took it and they did it by weight and it wasn't even worth that much when they give it to you by weight. Like, I don't remember what it was, but no one ever even got back their five cents per can after paying six cents tax for it. Um, so it was like, it was, it was a double hit on people. And I've had friends, you know, that go around and, you know, they, they collect the cans because, you know, 20 bucks here and 20 bucks there. If you're taking other people's cans and bottles, uh, might be worth it. So the homeless people digging through the trash, uh, are the, are the sorters of recycling goods. Cause those are the ones that, you know, spent zero money on it. Um, uh, and now they're laboring for it, getting back their nickels and dimes or whatever they happen to be getting for it. Uh, but more power to them. But again, for me, uh, it's always just been trash and I, I've just, it's just boggles my mind that people can be so, uh, again, virtue signal. I'm gonna say that again, virtue signaling environmentalism, uh, and environmentally conscious behavior, uh, when it doesn't economically add up, right. When the environmental cost, uh, or, or when the economic cost of the environment outweighs the benefit that they think they're doing, it's because they only see their little benefit and they don't see the overall cost to the environment, such as, like it said, uh, using the trucks and the coal burning and whatever it is to sort, uh, you know, collate, sort and bind all those recyclables that nobody needs, nobody wants to begin with, except for the fact that, you know, you get the virtue signal, how great of an environmentalist you are, but going, Oh, look at me. I've got like five little bins and I compost the rest, right? BS, uh, economically inefficient and more damage to the environment. And if it ever became economically beneficial, uh, to the environment, right, then that would be a time to reconsider it as long, again, in my opinion, it's not mandated by the state to do so. If there's an economic benefit to recycling, uh, which is good for the environment, it should be done at the individual level. And when it's individually beneficial to, to take back those recyclables and get some, some money for it, uh, then maybe I would consider it. But until then, out of spite only because it's mandated by the state, uh, it just goes right in the trash for me where it should be. I think I've reached my time. Uh, yep, I've reached my time. That'll do it for me. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, you know where to find us at anarchistexperience.com, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you want, like to contribute to the show financially, please do so through Patreon. Because uh, like I said, we, we, we're never going to get kicked off that thing because we're never going to be popular enough to make a dent on their impact. Uh, so patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. Peace. <laughs>